Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name is Ali and this episode is a little bit different to my normal episodes for this show because it features an interview I didn't conduct. Instead, I'll be sharing a chat that I recorded between Alex Kelly, a local legend who I'll tell you a bit more about in a minute, and Scott Ludlam, who has just released a book called Full Circle. When I heard about this book, I was instantly curious, as Scott is a well-known political figure here in Australia, a senator for the Greens for almost a decade in Western Australia, and he also served as deputy leader of the Australian Greens. His social media savvy made him a hit, and his background as an activist gave him a lot of street cred. What you will hear today is another reason he did so well on that national stage. He's a deep thinker and a really good speaker. I really enjoy talking with authors, but when I saw that Alex was going to interview Scott at a local event, I immediately contacted her instead of his publishers to see if I could record their chat. Alex is a Castlemaine local, but also very much at home in the desert and around Central Australia. I've been trying to line up an interview with her about her own work, as she is really quite extraordinary in all the things she's done. She is many things, an artist, activist, filmmaker, and social change worker. She has a strong focus on Indigenous rights, social justice and environmental justice. So I knew she'd do a really brilliant job and ask all sorts of insightful questions that I may not have thought of. The event was organised by a local crew called Northern Books. They organise literary events in our region. They were completely lovely and they even lent me a battery pack for my sound recorder when my own batteries ran out about halfway through the event. (laughs) So thank you guys. The event was held at the Taproom, a local brewery and pub here in Castlemaine. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that Saltgrass is produced on Jara Country. Jara Country is the traditional home of the Jajawarung people, who have been custodians and caretakers of this land for tens of thousands of years. We thank them for the care they have taken and continue to take of country. Salt. 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 Grassroots. 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 Salt of the Earth people. Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green at saltgrasspodcast.com. Thanks, everyone. It's quite a delight to be here with you all. And I, too, would like to acknowledge uh, that we are on Jajawarung country and particularly um, when we're in conversation about finding other ways of being with each other, being in the world, being with country, resisting extraction and holding these much more sophisticated ways of interdependence, we must look to the wisdom of First Nations people. And as Scott says repeatedly throughout the book this is not over till the old people by the fire say it's over so Scott I know I just gave you a super quick tour of town and we drove up to the jail and I was like and this and this and this and this and trying to tell you a bunch of things but I did remind you that the school strike for climate in Australia really has its origins with a lot of young people in this town that the Greens vote at some of the polling booths is up around 30 percent The the town council declared a climate emergency in 2019 and most recently this community raised the money in just eight days for Nalderun to buy land back in Shooton. So you are amongst friends. (laughs) Um, So I feel like we can really get into the guts of it in this conversation. And so 
you wrote a book. <laughs> and you wrote a really So it seems. There's big some of them just over there. It's still freaking me out that they're there. A really big <laughs> and brave and complex and inspiring and deep book. You talk about global epochs, the history of nation states, the history of monopoly, which I didn't know. It's great to hear about the woman who invented it that we never hear about. Climate justice, panicky, a whole range of different things. And so all of this was also being finished on the backdrops of the bushfires, the case study that came to you and the pandemic. So it's it's no small undertaking. Congratulations. It's an amazing book. So I thought what we'd do was just to go through sort of three main parts. We'll talk about the book itself, then we'll talk about the mess we're in right now, and then we'll talk about how do we get to the world that comes next. Are we going to do this in yes. less than an hour? <laughs> so you go planetary in scale. Can you tell us about the sort of five threads in the book and why you went there with geohistory? So, yes, there are five different strands. Or there, When I first pitched this book at the end of 2017 to a publisher, it looked like there were five separate books trying to coexist. So this is genuinely a testament to the power of editors. Always listen to your editor when they say your book's not ready yet. They're right. So I've wanted to write a geohistory, and I've been fascinated by that concept since, since I was in my 20s, actually. So there's little pieces of the book and passages in the book that I wrote in the 1990s before I knew what it would be end up being but the purpose of those things being there like taking a story from the formation of the planet literally all the way through to the present moment is because when we're dealing with a concept of climate change we're actually whether we like it or not having a conversation at the intersection of politics and geology like this is a, a deep old 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 story that we're making a small subsection of our society is making this radical intervention in a geological story so I felt like, well, let's set that in its proper context. Let's see where that story began. And so the geohistory is kind of threaded through the book. It's not lumpy. It's not scientific. I wanted to write something that felt visual. I felt as though you were there just because that's what I like to read. So that's the first piece. The second is this concept of coins of the Anthropocene. So this new geological age that geoscientists argue we've entered into the Holocene age you know the kind of chapters of this geological book that we learned in primary school the Holocene finished up arguably in the 1950s we're in this Anthropocene age which is effectively our little industrial subsection of our species is a geological agent now which is another way of saying that capitalism is in the process of overrunning the biosphere and our society and in kicking off a mass extinction I'm fascinated by the role that money plays in that so the idea of this coin doubling game is one of the central metaphors of the book is how is the global financial system kind of dragging the rest of the material economy into this doubling cascade which has these ruinous costs for us as human beings and for the species that we share the planet with. The third strand is, well, what do we do about that? I've been fascinated for many years, as you know, and I think just about everybody in this room who I recognise anyway, has been involved in social movements in some form or another. There's clearly an art to social movements. I've been fascinated for a while to know whether there's a science to it, whether patterns or collisions of social contention or of strikes or of uh, civil society uprisings through history have these kind of common patterns across space and time. And there's this really interesting bodies of work amid systems theory and sociology 
that maps those patterns of contention to phenomena like earthquakes and epidemics and forest fires and avalanches. And I've thought for a long time that that's interesting, isn't it? But is it useful? As, as If you're involved in a social movement trying to stop a war or a runaway extinction cascade, could you use that body of work to change your strategy or to affect decisions? Like, I know it's interesting, but is it actionable? So quite a big chunk of the book is exploring, firstly, just gently stress testing those bodies of work, and which I guess leads us to the fourth strand, which is some of the scientific stuff's a bit abstract. I'm fascinated by systems theory, but I get that not everybody else is. But ground-truthing that in real-world social movements, from First Nations struggles against the nuclear industry in Australia, native forest logging in the southwest of WA, to the kind of domain of formal politics that I was involved in for a little while, and I spent most of 2018 travelling, so talking to people from the Global Greens in Lebanon and in uh, Mongolia, the peace movement sailing with Peace Boat, which is this incredible Japanese NGO project, folks in Europe, folks in Latin America, folks in Africa, anybody involved in any dimension of the struggle, which sort of starts to feel as though it's the same struggle, who would sit down and talk to me there in the book. And the fifth element, if you like, is what would happen if all these people prevailed at more or less the same time? What is the world that comes next if we win? Like all this stuff that we've been involved in for our whole lives, never really expecting win is kind of a shallow concept actually for something so complex, but what would happen if we prevailed? If movements for peace, for climate justice, for social justice, for democracy, what would happen if we prevailed? What does that look like? Precocious actually to even ask the question, but let's play with that. And I wanted to ask you another thing about the book itself. That is the sort of, I guess it's a device that you've made a decision about, so I want to hear more about it, is that you use we a lot in the book. And as an audience member reading it, I'm reading it as a collective and you're included in that. And it's quite an unusual form in a book. Often when you're addressed directly as a reader, you're addressed as a you and as, a, as another singular person. And I know that you're also very humble about how you position yourself and you try and position yourself within the collective. So how did that work in the writing and did you really think about that or did it just happen? Or No, I did have to think about it because my editors tried to stop me from doing that. Okay. <laughs> it's like, we want to know who's telling this story. Don't pretend that you're not there. So yeah. I think you can push that form a little bit too far and the earlier essays that I sent to them for review, they're like, who is this vacuum telling us this story can you just tell us a little bit give us a bit so i i like it and i like that form of writing when i see others doing it well because i do feel included mm. and it feels kind of warm and i i want you to share some of these places and some of these times some of them are quite imaginary you shrink down to the size of an atom and we speed time up and we slow time down and i want you to feel like you're there yeah i think it really works but i really noticed it as quite unusual and the last thing just about the putting the book together, you said that you travelled a lot in 2018. So how did it come about that you went to Lebanon and had you decided to do a book before that trip you had? Okay, tell us about the research and, I mean, we'll get into it more when we talk about movements. But Well, I want the book to read like a road trip because I love that form as well and it warms up some of the theoretical stuff as well. But I, in 2017, I was genuinely a bit of a loose end because the constitutional stuff had blown up quite unexpectedly and I was just rattling around with a bit of combination of teenage angst and 
midlife crisis, like an uneasy, really uneasy place to be. But I got this invite to travel to Lebanon to work with the Green Party in Lebanon who were gearing up for a forthcoming election. And the Global Greens Network is kind of fascinating because there's parties that are very established like ours here, there's part, or, or Europe or New Zealand. There's parties that are right at the fringes and at the margins trying to break in. There's parties that aren't even legally registered but are trying to kind of break in. But I'd been to some Global Greens meetings where they would tend to come to us, but I wanted to go to them and see, well, what's it like trying to get elected in Lebanon? What's it like trying to do this work in Mongolia? So some of the trip was from that. Some of it was working with Peace Boat. How many people have heard of Peace Boat? I mean, maybe a, a handful. Really fascinating Japanese NGO that has the chart as an ocean liner and uses it as a floating peace university. So it's paying passengers, but also teachers from all over the world. So you get lecturers that will hop on in one port, hop off in another. And I was privileged to travel with them for five weeks and then sort of have the benefit of their networks as well. So there's stories from some unorthodox places or from existing relationships. So I'd visited Jadagora, which is the key uranium mining site in India. I visited them in 1999, promised I would come back. And so that was my opportunity to do that. So the trip was a bit ad hoc, actually. But anyway, here it is. And did you, were you filming or using a sound recorder or? Just sound recording. Sound recorder. I've yep. shot, I took lots of photos and little video snippets on my phone, but mainly it's audio. Yeah. So 2018 on the road, 2019 writing the book, thinking it was finished, finding out from your publishers that it wasn't quite there yet. No, that it totally was a mess <laughs> and they were not going to publish it. And then three weeks later, the whole world closed down. So I kind of dodged a bullet. Yeah. Well, not only the pandemic closing down, but you'd also just been through the bushfires in southern New South Wales. Yeah. That was very fresh. So I was 90, 80 or 90% of the way through the book when we could... I mean, and I know it was something the whole country went through. We could see it coming towards us. And so the sections in the book that are concerned with the bushfires were written at the time. So that probably gives them a bit of a different feel. But it turned out that they were the case study that I was looking for of how all these different threads that we're talking about of social movements, captive states, mutual aid, you know, different kinds of institutional responses and political responses to emergencies, how they collide at very high speed when everything's on fire. And that, that turned into the case studies that ends up structuring the book. Mm. I suppose in some ways we might think that it's lucky that that came to you, but actually there's probably case studies turning up on everyone's doorstep the world over now. <laughs> right, right. No, I hope I never, I hope none of us ever have to go through anything like that. So yeah. it was an unfortunate case study, but I figured... Here it is, and I couldn't not write about it, actually. We were right in the middle of it. Speaking of the things that we hope that people don't go through, let's just go into the, the coalface, the hard, harsh reality of the mess we're in now. I think that there's some really great insights into that in the book, and I think it'd be really good to talk about the captive state and a captured state and, and how you've seen that play out in different countries and how that's playing out in Australia. Yeah, okay, let's go there. So the book's not doomy and gloomy. Um, there's so much of that. And I know that amidst an audience like this, I don't have to persuade you that we're in a mess of trouble. And the book doesn't spend a lot of time doing that either. But diagnosis is important, right? Like if we misdiagnose what we're facing, we'll keep being stuck. So state capture was a concept I came across in South Africa where they've used it to name up this place along the slide between corruption and oligarchy. 
and they mean it in a very distinct way. You know, corruption is often informal, it's ad hoc, it's reasonably low stakes, maybe it's paper bags full of cash being exchanged in car parks or whatever. We have that here, particularly during elections, but and, they, and th that exists all over the world to degrees. But in South Africa, they figured they weren't existing in a full oligarchy either. There was still a reasonably raucous free press. They could still organise. There was still a judicial system that was kind of functioning. But I, I spoke with an editor of an Afrikaans language newspaper there and came across this whole body of work on state capture when they, when they characterise that it's the rulemaking process of society itself that are at stake. It's much more systematic than corruption. It leaves a lot of the infrastructure intact. It looks like you're still living in a democracy, but key pieces of it have been kind of switched off. It's kind of hiding in plain sight too because yeah. you're saying, oh, but we still vote. We still have free media. What yes. are you talking about? Right. And so, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. And those things are also true. But we still can, we can have this conversation in relative safety. I don't believe we're living in an oligarchy. This is not fascism. Elements of it are becoming fascist adjacent. But So it, I found that a really useful set of tools. There's a body of literature around how it operated in post-Soviet Eastern Europe, in post-colonial Africa and Latin America. Here, let's name it up. The resources sector has us in the grip of something akin to a form of state capture. Because it doesn't matter which of the major parties you vote for. In state or federal parliament, the resources sector is still going to form a majority. It doesn't, and nowhere in here does it say, therefore don't vote, it's a waste of time, I've wasted 20 years of my life, because I don't believe that. But we've just got to look at it with open eyes. We, we can change the government back and forth all we like. The coal industry is still going to have the ability to pass whatever laws it wants. One of the signatures of state capture is this thing of repurposing, where public institution kind of gets hollowed out and pointed in a, in a different direction. So in Queensland, Extinction Rebellion started gluing themselves to roads and they were bringing lock-on pipes to these actions where a tiny handful of people could actually seize up a CBD and force you to pause and notice what these kids are talking about. It's extremely disruptive, it's controversial, and it's effective. We did this in Sydney a couple of years ago. I did back-to-back -back interviews for a week about Extinction. Why are you doing this? There's a, there's a place for it. The Queensland Resources Council hates that shit, really hates it. They like us when we march around in circles. They don't like us when we bring cities to a standstill, even briefly. So they demanded that laws be passed banning the use of lock-on pipes in civil disobedience actions. Within a week, Premier Palaszczuk had introduced such laws. Those devices are now unlawful in Queensland. So that's the resources sector repurposing policing agencies and parts of the judicial system to try and shut down a tactic of civil disobedience. I'm sure whether you're a fan of the use of lock-on pipes or not, you must admit that that's a dangerous thing for a group of investors to be able to do. Yeah. I've gone right off track, haven't I? State capture. <laughs> we need to get on that. And one of the other things that I think it's just worth noting as well because it's a, such a good illustration of the depth of research in the book too is that you talk about the notion that whoever spends the most in an election campaign wins. And we know that, but it's actually been proven. It's in the data. And do you want to speak about what that looks like here? Let's speak it? about it briefly before we... Then we'll get on to the good then stuff. Then we talk about, well, what, how do we meet <laughs> that? But so it's this body of work that's been done by a research group in the US and they've chased back all the way back to 1980 US House of Representatives elections and they've just mapped the correlation between which of the major two parties in the US, it's every two years, 
spends the most money, and what's the correlation between the share of vote? Yeah, and it's a straight line correlation. There's zigzags and there's occasional outliers, but the basic premise is if you know in advance which candidate spent the most money, we don't even need to go out and vote, just declare that person the winner. Whoever spends the most money wins. Now, the data set isn't as good in Australia, but the Grattan Institute did some work last year or the year before and proved that the party that spent the most money won the most seats in five out of five of the last federal elections. And again, this is not an instruction to stop voting. I really mean it. But it's a suggestion in my mind to start electing people who aren't owned by the resources sector. Because you can see who, like, who can afford to bankroll political candidates. This is not about us chipping in 20 bucks to the Greens, but please do that. <laughs> but it's about Woodside spending $125,000 to join the Labor Business Forum and another $125,000 to join the Liberal Business Forum. And then we're just going to have these quiet closed-door policy conversations. It's, this, it's the price of entry, and I can't afford that, so we've got to organise in different ways. One last thing that I want to touch on before we get to the world that comes next is you just said we're not an oligarchy and we're not in fascism but we are fascist adjacent and it's something I've reflected on quite a lot just watching some of the fascistic tendencies that are coming in through some green thinking and also the intersection of, of the far right starting to come and see climate change as an opportunity to close borders, etc. So I think there's a good section in the book where you would just alert us to that and I think it's worth speaking to now because it's one of those things that can creep in really easily and all of a sudden you're in quite a different place. You see strands of it in population arguments and you see strands of it in folk who come into climate organising without any kind of deep backdrop in social movement organising or in social justice work. And it is, I reckon it's worth waving a big flag. So you see how the European far right, where they don't have these political traditions that we've borrowed from heavily in Australia from the US, where the US has turned, you know, political discourse in the US and here, has, has turned climate change into a foil of the culture wars, where the right wing and the left wing, you know, the left wing kind of owns climate change. It's part of this soft, veganist, feminist agenda is that you then care about climate change and the right do not. And that's a weird and artificial state of affairs which we've gotten very used to here and it's hard to imagine it shifting. In, in Europe, Marine Le Pen and the far right are now talking about ecological civilizations and they're using climate disruption as a, as a fantastic argument for xenophobia and closed borders and lots and lots more barbed wire. So we have to get in front of, of this kind of hybridization of right-wing politics, grabbing the bits of the climate agenda that suit them. Industry policy, great. Solar panels, yep. Jobs, wind farms, uh, detention camps, barbed wire drones, just shoot people at sea if they're trying to get in. We have to get in front of that because if we're not careful, a largely white middle-class climate movement is going to kind of inadvertently buy into that. We have to get in front of it and name it before it before that wave breaks. And I don't think we've left it too late. No, especially, I mean, it's especially a challenge here, I think, where we already have, as we've seen with the pandemic and then just most recently with the border closure to India, we're, we're very, very quick at closing our borders and very quick at choosing who we close them to. So we've got to be on to that one. But I think this is probably a good point, um, moment to sort of, shift to talking about how do we find the world that comes next and I suppose maybe just leading on from that piece it might be good to try and sketch out 
a definition of climate justice and why it's so important that as we think about the diagnosis that we've made, we think about the risks of those eco-fascist tendencies coming in, etc., that we don't just latch onto the idea that huge mass-scale solar farms and technological advances and just a switch to renewables are going to be enough to get us out of this mess. So climate justice. Yeah, because it depends how you characterise the mess. There's a, Alan Finkel's got this really perceptive essay in Quarterly Essay, if you've come across that, which is he's, he's Australia's chief scientist for a couple of years. It's, it's an interesting example. This is not attributing any ill will or anything. He's, he's done quite an important job. But it's an example of an attempt to just quite narrowly define what the problem is with climate change, which is we're going to swap out one for one all of the coal and gas in a measured way and we're going to swap in clean energy with battery backup and some hydro backup and we're going to leave the rest of society exactly as it is which I think just leads you into a form of extinction powered by solar panels, which are all getting chucked into landfill in 25 years' time. And the rest of the economy is still, we're still assuming that it's going to be twice the size, twice as aggressive, twice as material intensive in 25 years' time, but there'll be heaps of wind turbines. So that doesn't quite get us into the justice argument, but it does force us to open our eyes to say, well, if that's not the solution, then what is it exactly that we're dealing with? There's no form of green nationalism. There's no form of just kind of putting the walls up and dealing with our own little patch and hoping that the rest of the world kind of quietly slides into the sea in a non-disruptive way. This is a planetary project. And for me, the concept of climate justice is loosely formulated is a planetary form of mutual aid. We have to let go of some of the borders in our minds and imagine what that looks like extended truly species-wide right across the whole planet because the climate doesn't give a shit where the CO2 is coming from. The atmosphere doesn't care. And it means recognising that this is a very old struggle. This has been going for 500 years. On this ground, it, the Extinction Rebellion started 232 years ago. So we're, we're coming to this, if, if we can widen our perception just that little bit, quite late into an intergenerational struggle about an economic form and a form of colonial patriarchy that's extremely extractive of the biosphere and of human beings and that the struggle has had all kinds of monumental wins and it's been underway for generations. That's the, for me, that was kind of a big shift that working in an anti-nuclear space helped me grab because they are thinking intergenerationally into the future of these waste streams that are going to exist until, you know, into geological time as well. So that's partly why the geohistory stuff is in the book. It's like, let's just really open, open our perception a little bit wider as to what it is that we're engaged in. Do you have a snappy definition of climate justice? Because I totally <laughs> sucked at that. So do you well, want to have a go? Well, I think it's also about who benefits first from any shifts we make. There's a lot of people in frontline communities that are currently bearing the greatest brunt of extraction and they need to be the ones who we support first in the transition. And I think a climate justice-based transition is one that doesn't leave anyone behind. And it's one of the reasons I did want to speak about it here is because this town is, like, as a community, super engaged in climate action and demands around climate justice. And, and But I think that often there is that tendency to lean towards householder reforms and consumer-based reforms and not necessarily look at what that means for everyone in a, in a community. I knew it was worth asking you. <laughs> 
But coming to social movements, and I think both of us, the Jabaluka blockade in 1998 in the Kakadu National Park was incredibly formative. You were there in your 30s. I was I was a bit younger. I was 28. Oh, okay. Thank you. Well, I was only... <laughs> okay, well, I was 19. <laughs> but um, There's a couple of Jabaluka crew here, aren't there? Yeah. Yeah, it's yes. a few hands. So I think for many people in the environment movement in Australia, that was really formative, arriving at that blockade, being given a Mirar passport by the Mirar people, listening to Yvonne Margarula and Jackie Katona lead that campaign. And, and subsequently, the work that has happened in the anti-nuclear movement in Australia has been incredible and it's kind of kept the brakes on the global industry. But one of the things I was thinking about when reading your book and also reflecting on Jabaluka is that as a 19-year-old and a 28-year-old, being involved in a victory in a social movement that was led on country by First Nations people but supported both across the continent and then internationally meant that I've always believed we can win since then and I, I feel like that there's something in that energy that carries through in the way that, yeah, the conversations you're having with movements around the world. Yeah. Some of that's just luck, but I feel exactly the same. So Mira are now master planning with the Territory and Commonwealth Governments, Jabiru, as kind of a world-class cultural tourism hub, while Rio Tinto is working out how to backfill the hole and return return that lease into the, into the World Heritage Area. It's not perfect, and they're having a hell of a time of it, but Ranger is closed. There's no uranium mining coming out of Kakadu at the moment for the first time since the 1980s. So, yeah, as a young person, that was an incredibly formative experience and also seeing how bloody much it cost them. People who have nowhere else to go getting forced into these collisions, it's immensely costly. Mm. So I don't want to... We're not here to kind of glamorise it, but, yeah, acknowledging that we absolutely can win and that's a wonderful example. So paying attention to movements. Let's get to thinking about the science. So... Both of us have already, you know, done a lot of travel, connected with movements around the world, looked at victories and losses and read lots of books and thought a lot about how change happens. But tell me about bringing science into that. Who, who's a bit freaked out even by the thought of doing that? Because I definitely was. Like it's a bit of a weird thing to do and it felt a bit fraught. But anyway, here we are. It's in the book. So it's too late to back out now. <laughs> we glanced at this a little bit earlier, but... It's concept of power laws in natural systems where you graph the frequency, how often something happens, and the magnitude. How often did big things happen compared to how often little things happen? So for earthquakes, it's called the Richter scale, where it's basically an earthquake 10 times as intense is 10 times less likely to happen. And I think I knew that. I think they taught us that at high school, but I hadn't really thought it through, which means a graph of the frequency and the intensity of earthquakes is going to be smooth <laughs> through this enormous range of scales, even though it's formally impossible to predict when an earthquake's going to happen. There's even a graph. He goes there. He gets nerdy. I do, and you asked the question, so now we're going to go there. Forest fires work the same way. Avalanches work the same way. So even though the slope of the graph is different for each of these phenomena, but big things happen less often than small things. That's reasonably intuitive. But in this perfectly smooth distribution of frequency and intensity through a huge range of scales, which means if you know in advance a little bit of the history of the fault line or the epidemic history of a population, you can predict in advance and know in advance how often events of a certain scale and size are going to happen. So far, so good. 
Right, like in a physical system like an earthquake. So the crazy thing is the maths of strikes are identical and social contention through the 20th century and violence. So how often do outbreaks of violence kill certain numbers of people? And it looks like that graph. And strike waves in particular, like very fine-grained records of strikes in the US and France in, in the 19th century, look like that graph. So big events happen less often than small events, but through this quite perfect and smooth distribution, except for one catch, nuclear accidents. Yeah, the, the frequency and the intensity, this relationship is very smooth with one catch, which in systems that are adaptive, which are learning, which bring memory, where the two sides are thinking in some degree about what it is that they're doing, there's the possibility of these complete system-wide flips where the whole thing just changes into a different state, a regime change. So I have long been fascinated by that. And there's this huge body of scholarship about how this phenomenon maps between simple physical systems like an earthquake or the mathematical example of a sand pile and something as complicated and unpredictable as a strike or a wave of strikes of industrial action. I have been fascinated for a really long time wondering if you knew that and if you kind of got inside that body of scholarship, would it change your strategy? Would it change the way you operated or talked about your issue? You're going to have to buy the book to find out. But One of the people that you were talking to who researched the earthquakes was saying that they couldn't actually, even though they knew there would be small ones and big ones, they didn't, couldn't predict when they were coming because the earthquake itself doesn't know when it's going to be a big one. And you posit the same for social movements. And there's something incredibly reassuring about that, that you might be on something that has a little peak and dissipates, or you might be on something like, you know, the crowdfund we just watched that just went, Phew. And maybe you sat down on the steps of Parliament with a cardboard placard and declared you were not going to go to school on Fridays, and in two years' time there'd be seven million kids doing the same thing. And that's one example of these cascades. Every now and again, you just hit a fault line, bang, and kids have been doing school strikes for years before that, just little ones, but nothing had ignited and caught on like that. And so in these zigzags of contention, it means sometimes there's a lull, sometimes there's a pandemic and we're not even allowed to see each other anymore, let alone organise a riot. But the fault line's still there, the pressure is still there. So even if it feels like you've had a bit of a knock, the fault line is still there. And the, the probability of a social movement doubling in size is constant, no matter how big it already is. The probability of an earthquake doubling in size is constant, no matter how big it already is. So remember that next time there's a wave of strikes because the probability of there being twice as many people on strike in a week's time is constant. Yeah. So some of it feels a bit abstract and some of it I just find wildly exciting. It means you know the big ones out there. It's formally impossible with the best supercomputer on the planet to predict when it's going to happen. But it's out there. And when you ask how might that shift our strategy or our thinking or our planning, what what do we imagine that might be? Do you think that there's a way of connecting these fissures and these little earthquakes as they happen? Yeah, I, I think so. And it's a, it's a pretty knotty area and it would depend on what kind of campaign you're involved in and what it was you were trying to achieve. I think there's some benefit just in having the conversation that these are the dynamics of the collisions that we're involved in. And just being a little bit aware that that's the kind of the field that we're engaged in. But also, if we're trying to spark runaway cascades or we're trying to spark these avalanches, I think there are ways that we speak to each other or that we organise amongst each other where we're trying to propagate these things 
There's a bunch of stuff in here on network theory as well about how movements and ideas propagate along networks of different structure. And some of it is just building community. Some of it's just building trust so that when we really need each other, those relationships of trust are there. And one of the things you also talk about is that everything we need to build the world that comes next is already here. Could you tell us a bit about what you imagine the world that we really want to be next looks like? It's the shortest section of the book because it feels the most fraught because you could just be pitched as a bit of a loony. So I think politically we don't quite have everything we need yet, but there's not a technical or an engineering or a scientific barrier, like we're not awaiting somebody to invent some clever thing. So all of those pieces are there, and it feels as though when this earthquake finally does take off, we're going to be able to avail ourselves of these tools. The thing that feels like it's missing is that global or that planetary dimension of the mutual aid networks. Like our, our networks nationally are quite strong. They could always be stronger and more diverse and more capable, but they exist. And you can see like non-government organisations or mutual aid networks or, or the Greens or established environment groups and so on, the networks are there. But our networks globally are very sparse because they are chopped up by these artificial borders that have been placed there with huge amounts of institutional pressure designed to kind of keep us focused inside these borders, even to the degree where we ignore what's happening a couple hundred k's to the north of Darwin. So dismantling those mental barriers and thinking really hard about what global networks of mutual aid look like does feel like a missing piece. And it feels so profound that we don't even notice that it's there. So there's a snippet in the book of a group that I've been involved in for just about a year called Progressive International, which has set itself up as the scaffolding for these social movements, like a lattice. It's explicitly saying we're not a new social movement. We don't need any more new social movements, but we do need to close the distance between people doing similar work in different parts of the world, particularly in parts of the world where it is not safe to have the kind of conversation we're having tonight. I also wanted to ask the American poet and farmer Wendell Berry talks about the preserving qualities of the heart. And I wanted to ask in all of your travels and connection with social movements and activists and organisers, what are some of the patterns not the scientific patterns that correlate with earthquakes, but the qualities of the heart that you've noticed between people. There's a quote in there from a Kenyan researcher who talks about friendship being the foundation of all social movements because it just means it bypasses a whole heap of other traps that we can fall into when we're organising. And that felt like it really resonated. There's no textbook that's going to tell you that, but that friendship is the foundation. That and humour, actually... I haven't put my finger on what that's about. Is that a quality of the heart? I think whether it's mockery of the powerful, which I think is quite a powerful place for that here in Australia, or just the way in which we cope with these deranged circumstances that we sometimes find ourselves in. Mm, like when you're talking about the, the surprise, when you found the joy in the kids in India, I think it was in the village. Well, that's in the world's largest refugee camp. So I visited a place called Kutapalong, which is just down the coast from... It's a little tourist village called Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh. And there's a million people there who'd been burned across the border from Myanmar only about eight or ten months before I got there. So there's an enormous camp. More than half the population of this place are children. And I got there expecting a complete catastrophe. And it's not a happy place, but there's these kids capering around demanding to look at my camera and then demanding to use the camera. 
and then to see what was on the camera. And it was just like this crazy little carnival. They're having a dance party when I got there. These little kids, just bonkers. And we had no common language. They had a couple of fragments of English and that was that. But it was just this peculiar experience of absolute joy in, in this very, very dangerous edge place where a million people had just kind of been deposited. I have a lot more questions, but I'm sure many other people do too. There's a roving mic. We might take three questions at a time. Like we'll just get all three of them out and then we'll respond. And we'd love to mix up ages and genders and who's asking questions. So I'm going to ask for my partner who's very shy and, and is a South African and that's where we met. And it's the question on state capture. Having a lot of heart in South Africa and having lived in places of the world where institutional corruption is in place, the question is how do you then undo it because that's so damn hard. Great. And I'll just take two more questions and then we'll answer them. I'm involved in like just climate movement campaigns like the local thing that led to the school strike and the superannuation campaign. And it's hard to integrate this idea of no growth, um, steady state economy into our sort of climate campaigns and really plug that and tell people, you know, we want you to roll over your super but we really don't believe in super. Great. We don't believe in the whole system. <laughs> Thank you. And there's one last question right up the back. I'm slightly challenged with formulating the question, but I think it riffs off the concept of friendship and this idea around a global consciousness around having a moral framework around how we conduct ourselves. I mean, I think that word friendship is encapsulating it, but how do we deepen it? And for me, it's got to do with, you know, the sense of Gaia and the world and us being interconnected. And so you could you could use the word spirituality, but what is how do we build a moral framework that holds us in that friendship? They're all such great questions. So, how to unpick state capture? The first, I guess, lesson that I got in Johannesburg was when they named it, it gave people a conceptual hook onto which to hang it. That was like this is much more satisfying than talking about corruption, which it clearly isn't. It's less melodramatic than talking about oligarchy, which it clearly isn't. So there, a bunch of academics and, and independent politicians published this report called Shadow State, named it State Capture, and the media ran off with it, and then people were like, yeah, okay, this makes sense. The diagnosis in itself helped them formulate a response, and it also helped them target which institutional piece has been ripped out. In their case, it was the prosecuting authority. So you could do whatever crime you like. If you were connected to these particular families, you would never be prosecuted. Yeah, so di really different to what we're dealing with here, different piece of the institutional architecture. So naming it is the first thing. And then the second one, which maybe um, goes into the second question a little bit, is, well, what do you do about it? I don't think there's going to be any response that makes sense in the generality. We've got to look at our specific circumstances here. So here, this is going to be a very crude formulation, right? If it's an industry block or a set of investors that have captured our politics such that we still should vote. We should try and get independents and Greens elected and people who aren't banking these checks. Good. But what are we going to do between elections? That's really going to get their attention. And so there's an essay in there called Burn the Money. Burn the money. Go for the stuff that they're actually really going to piss them off. Drive the money away. Look at what the way the Adani campaigners have held off a mine that wanted to ship its first coal in 2014, has all its state and federal permits in hand. 
you know, there's nothing legal or regulatory preventing Adani from having rail coal out of Galilee for years. How come that mine still doesn't exist? And it's because they've just deployed a whole different pile of very lateral campaign tactics, driven the banks away, driven the insurance away, driven big elements of the supply chain away, left them with the absolute dregs of suppliers, the contractors. The company to rebrand itself. They changed their name. Oh, we're Bravis now. Oh, are you? How come? So, I mean, it's absolutely deadly serious. They may yet get their mind built, but it's cost them six years. Personally, I don't think they will. I think they've run the clock out. So we just got to adapt our campaign tactics. If they've seized control of that, it's going to take us a little while to get it back. Then go lateral. So there are some ideas as non-prescriptive as I felt like I could get away with for opening our minds a little bit. Coming back to this quote by John Gorton in 1971, where he said, we will tolerate dissent as long as it is ineffective. I've, isn't it brilliant? I've been using that as a guide. What's the dissent that they find intolerable? And that's our list. That's our to-do list. How do we talk about growth? I'm going to pause this one until after you've had a chance of reading the book because I've used this metaphor of the... Oh, that's a cheap shot, isn't it? But I've used this metaphor of the coin doubling game to try and close that argument in the first few pages. It's like uh, we shouldn't be having to... That shouldn't even be a contestable conversation anymore. People have been toying with this since the 1970s, you know. They wrote the limits to growth in, what, 74 or something. Why, are we, why is this still even contestable? So I've used this metaphor of this coin doubling game to try and just set that aside right at the beginning and proceed on the basis that you couldn't possibly contest that. But it's difficult if you're talking to the finance community uh, about divestment campaigns or about where our super is parked. This is the world that we live in at the moment. You know, this is the reality and we've got to turn the ship that we have, not the one that we wish we had. And the third one, I feel like I'm going to struggle with a bit. I'm not a particularly spiritual person or I find that grounding in myself in the friendship, in the relationships that I've formed in the course of the work, but also in the presence of the places that we're trying to protect. I found that really strongly in going to Jabaluka and in spending a little bit of time in forest campaigns in the southwest is that once you'd visited a place it hits you in a very different way. Probably in a very superficial way compared to the way that traditional owners and custodians feel when places are attacked and compromised and threatened. But there's something, there's always been something to that for me. The place itself can take its place as a political actor. It can exert a certain kind of pressure. Um, kind of hoping that happens really soon with the Great Barrier Reef. But I, I want to hear what Alex thinks. Well, about. I actually found a really poignant weave in the book around this actually and I was thinking about it in relationship to how I feel in the desert and then I was thinking well other people would have that relationship to land perhaps with the ocean or with the forest but I was thinking about relationship to natural world in those moments that I've experienced where I feel tiny and granular and almost inconsequential and yet totally connected and part of that huge, mysterious, amazing, cosmic universe that is the world. That's why I wanted to ask you about heart and I'm glad Natalie asked you about spirituality because you're very guarded in a sense and you don't necessarily have that at the forefront but I found the way that you talked about geohistory and all of these interconnected, very slow, millennial, long 
evolutions and then our place in the world and the, also the way that you use the I and the we does go somewhere to capturing, I think, what Natalie's asking about, this sense of, like, I, I am still a singular, unique being, but I am never separate from everything that has happened that means that what is happening now is happening. <laughs> All right, that makes me really happy. <laughs> I think it's in there. I'll take a few more questions and we'll do the same thing again if that's all right. I think what I was thinking about was the when you were talking about everything that is going to happen is because of what's already happened. And I really like that because it's, then, it's about seeing the worth in everything, you know. But then we're also... Everything that's happening is also really shit. I mean, no, not everything, but there's a lot of really... You know, it's about balancing that out. I suppose it's, it's like trying to unpick the balance in there or the lack of balance in there. And we'd like to see if you or hear a little bit more about that. Excellent. I've got one right at the very back and one right at the very front. Hi, guys, and thanks for tonight. Is there any place in this entire discussion for federal politics? Great, thank you. And one more right at the front. And I'm going to take four this time because I haven't heard from enough women. So one from Warwick and then one more up and then back up. You'll be running up and down. Thanks, Scott. I think we really need this kind of thoughtful contribution right now. My question struck as an economist that right at the very beginning you mentioned the finance sector. And maybe you've sort of dodged this question already in talking about the coin toss thing. But, you know, state capture in terms of the resource sector, but I think there's also state capture happening here in terms of the finance sector and the banking. And, you know, we've been talking locally a little bit about creating our own currency here as a way of retaking that ground. But I do think there's a, there's a big conversation here. Michael Hudson refers to it as the fire sector, finance, insurance, real estate. And, yes. it's, right. and it's massive here, right? That it's, it's almost like we can't do anything because of, of that sector vacuuming up all our energy and all our wealth and making people work hard for housing and all that stuff. So curious about, you know, you've spoken a bit about resources to hear your views about that too. And we'll just take one last question in this round by the bar. I'm really interested in what you say about we have the science, we have the technology and we hear this all the time, but we still talk about the science all the time. And I think of Biokomalafe and what he says about maybe the way we define the crisis is part of the crisis and what other types of power exist. So why do we keep on lighting candles at the altar of science and what other altars exist? Awesome. Awesome, brilliant. Okay. I'm going to take that one on fair and square, that that feels to me like it's part of my cultural tradition in a way that I can't look at this the way a black fellow would look at it. I'm reading Sand Talk at the moment by Tyson Yonker Porter, and he's examining Western traditions of knowledge from traditional perspective, but I couldn't have written it. There would have been a catastrophe if I'd even attempted to do that. So the reason I've approached it from the altar of science is, A, I like candles, and if you strip back that, that tradition to its simplest elements, it's ask a question of the universe and then sit really, really quietly and listen to what she tells you. And if she tells you something that disagrees with what you thought was going to happen, then discard that and pay really close attention to what the universe has just told you about whatever the phenomenon was you were studying. There are all sorts of disastrous problems with approaching that method too narrowly or stripping things down to their component bits and ignoring context or pretending that you're not an active participant 
and potentially changing the field that you're studying just by existing in it or by asking these questions in the first place. But I still find something really elegant about the practice of asking a question, like observe what's going to happen. What happens when I do this? Or what happens when we intervene in this particular way? And then paying super careful attention to the results of your query. And if the results are unexpected, you have to change your worldview. There's something about that that I still love and trust. But I hadn't, and, and the reason that I've, I've taken that approach in particular to the question of social movements is that I hadn't really seen it done, this is going to sound precocious probably, but by practitioners. Like a lot of the researchers and the sociologists and the systems theorists doing this work have clearly never organised a demonstration in their life. Not as, and that's not a, taken a shot at them, but like these disciplines take years to get into. I know I'm going on a bit now, but it was such a great question. And at the same time, somebody involved in politics or in social movement organising where there's this incredible body of folk knowledge, but not often the time to study it systematically. I certainly knew that in my own practice. Like, I don't have time to think about systems theory. We're organising a demonstration on Tuesday or we're trying to stop a war or whatever. So I was using the luxury of the time I had to try and bridge that divide a little bit. I reckon I've answered about 40% of the intent of your question, but I'm just going to press on. There's heaps of Michael Hudson in the book, like I adore him. So uh, I feel like you're going to be right at home here. But he's an economist who he's an economist in the old tradition who acknowledges the role of money and the role of finance in in our economy. And I don't think it's well resolved in the book, but it's a question that I've thrown out there. So money, money in the kind of form that it dominates our lives at the moment exists as interest-bearing debt. So it's loaned into, into existence. And its whole existence as a mathematical agreement is purposed on growing and doubling within a finite time. So it's, it's interest-bearing, right? It's not like a coin that hits the table. Its job is to have created more money within a finite period of time. And so the huge question is, well, what's the correlation between money on this weird infinite growth escalator and the fact that huge sections of our economy appear to have been dragged into an infinite growth escalator, including something as basic as real estate, that you look at the housing market and it's red, in, it, you see it in the business pages, is the housing market is red hot. It's twice as expensive to live in Sydney as it was X period of time ago. This is fantastic news. And I once saw literally on the facing page of a major national daily a story about homelessness. And these two things weren't connected. A good news story here, an unfortunate person dying homeless here, and those two things weren't connected. So I sheet nearly all of the responsibility of this back to investors whose job is to double their money within a certain period of time, and they've dragged the entire material economy into that project, and it's a disaster. But if you've got actual expertise in this, you may read this and just be shaking your head going, oh my God. And you may need to write a better book, but the stuff is, is in there. There's a question about what's the role of federal politics. Well, it's central because we've, we've delegated a whole pile of our collective decision making to this thing called a parliament and we elect people into it and they make these key decisions. So I don't think we should abandon it. And there's nothing in here or in anything I hope they've ever written that would encourage people to walk away from that domain. I think it's too important for us to cede it. You know how the general rule book of neoliberalism is to run down anything with the word public in front of it. Um, this has happened all over the world where you would take a public transport network or the public health system or public education or public housing and you just, you just run it down and turn it, you really degrade it, stop maintaining it, turn it into a trash. And then when people um, kick back at how appalling the service suddenly is, you propose to privatise it. You'd say, the, 
the private sector could clearly do a much better job of this. Let's just sell these services. It's a very familiar repertoire. I'm strongly of the view that they're doing the same thing to public democracy, to our democratic institutions, where the corruption and the graft and the degraded quality of the debate is designed to just make us turn our backs on it and abandon it. And we must not abandon it. One Before you yeah, answer shoot. the next one, just it was something I wasn't sure whether we'd get to, but now we're in federal parliament. Let's chat a little bit. I mean, I know Scott from a very short stint in Bob Brown's office and in Canberra. And one of the things about working in that building that was so astounding to me is that so few people inside Parliament House acted as if they were in service of the people outside Parliament House. They were just in their own bubble and we're hearing more and more about that now. And except for the Greens and I was equally astounded by how hard everyone in the Greens works and how little people realise about how much people are being held to account by your work in there. But given the conversations about Christian Porter and Brittany Higgins and the other carry-on inside Parliament House, I did wonder if you had some thoughts on these things. Well, there's a lot there, isn't there? Yes. <laughs> no, I mean, we're, we're close to time, so we'll just... <laughs> I, but I could talk about no, this all it, night. Is anybody yeah. bored? Because we could stop. But... I mean, but there's sort of two things going on there. One yeah. is just the fact that the the absolute disregard for what the actual role of being in Parliament is, and then and I think that's probably connected to the kind of violence that happens within that place. Right. It is. It is. So there's a chunk in the book on this. Again, we we glanced at it before the investment theory of party competition, where it's really investor blocks bankrolling certain candidates until they can form working majorities, and then you work for them. And the art of it is to make it look as though it's all the will of the people that we repealed your carbon price, that the coal industry spent millions of dollars orchestrating it. So that's a really different ethic to being in there. And it doesn't mean that politicians are bad people. And there's, there's folk of good heart, I mean this, on all sides in there, or people who go in with an ethic of service. But ultimately, they're put there by investors, most of them, unless you fundraised thousands of tiny donations and organised a massive door-knocking effort and substituted love for money. And I strongly believe that's what our movement was and is about. It's like, well, we don't have the money. We're not seeking that kind of money. But if you translated the volunteer effort, this huge, flat volunteer effort over a period of months and months to actually get the message out face-to-face, you would find it was worth $5 million. And if that's more than the investors spent, you could potentially get someone elected. But as to why it's this horrific, airless, closed, violent, misogynistic bubble... I think that's a deeper that's a deeper question and I think it's been like that the whole time. It's just that we're seeing people who are courageous enough knowing exactly how much vitriol they're going to cop and how much it's going to cost them personally is that people have had a gutful and are now calling it out. So it's not that it suddenly is there, it's that people are courageously calling it out. Which is another fissure and it kind of links in with the Me Too movement and yeah. And yeah. yeah. That's that... It's though you had a forest floor that was tinder dry, waiting for a spark. And then someone says, you know what, fuck this. I'm just going to be the spark, even though it's going to cost me. And then bang, off it goes. And we see that over and over again. Mm. So there was a question about, I and Emma, jump if, if I get this wrong. Was it a question about inevitability? If everything that's about to happen depends on everything that happens before, then uh, do we have free will? Like, are we going there right at the end of the evening? <laughs> Because we will. (laughs) 
I don't know if anybody's come across Joanna Macy. So she, she's, it's a little while since she visited Australia. And I think she's getting, she's quite elderly now, but she used to come out quite a bit and run these workshops for us. She, she was the first person I heard speaking of systems theory in a way that was politically actionable rather than academically curious. But she also used to play this game with us. So we're learning how to lock on safely, how to deal with police, how to talk to media, how to organize ourselves. But also she would play this game called the systems game, which is where you get whoever's in the workshop, stand in a circle, choose silently without letting on, choose two people in the circle, don't let them know that you've chosen them. And then when she calls go, all you've got to do is try and place your body in equal distance between the two people that you've chosen. There's only one rule in the game. You don't have to stand directly between them, but just try and be in equal distance between them. And then she calls go and the circle dissolves. Boom. And then it's like this crazy dance. And as this is a game with just one rule. All you've done is chosen two influences and then you've got this agency. You can choose how fast to move and how aggressive to try and place yourself. And it creates these completely unplanned unpredictable dynamics. She uses that game to teach a variety of different concepts around systems theory, but the thing that I took away from it was there's absolutely formally no way of predicting where that game is going to end up. There is absolutely no inevitability. It's the opposite of inevitability. You could run the game with everybody standing in the same positions, choosing the same two people, it will immediately diverge. It'll never ever end the same way twice. And I just feel like we're involved, particularly in social movements, in something vastly of higher dimensions than the systems game, but there's nothing inevitable about it. That cuts both ways for me. Anybody who thinks that we're on some historically inevitable trajectory of a clean energy future and global democracy and that this is all going to work out, really we have to drop that. No, There's no way of predicting how this is going to turn out. That's also very exciting. Let's get to work. Like It's in the balance. was Alex Kelly interviewing Scott Ludlam at the Tap Room in Castlemaine, an event which was organised by Northern Books. So the book is called Full Circle and is definitely well worth a read. Links to the book, as well as some of the other things mentioned in the interview with Alex and Scott, are in the episode description at saltgrasspodcast.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. Again, you can do that by going to saltgrasspodcast.com. This program is made possible with the support of Main FM and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. My name is Ali Hanley. Thanks for listening. Salt, salt, of the earth. Salt, 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 Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green at saltgrasspodcast.com.